Lucas on Life. Hello, welcome to Lucas on Life. I'm Jeff Lucas, coming to you again from freezing cold but beautiful Colorado. Over the last few days, and being on the edge of a rather significant personal turning point, I've been reviewing my 46 years as a minister and Christian leader. Looking back, there are countless episodes where I could have made wiser decisions. There are truths and insights that I really wish I'd known when I began the journey, first of faith and then of being a minister and pastor. And so tonight, join me as I share the last in this series of things I really wish I had known years ago. I've made many blunders in my Christian walk, which have sometimes felt more like a stagger than a walk. So perhaps there's some insight that might help you in your life. That's what I'm hoping and praying for as you join me tonight on Lucas on Life, here on Premier Christian Radio. I wish I'd known that being seen matters. It's an old saying, apparently dating from the 15th century, and one that I've never liked. Children should be seen and not heard. It's a nasty notion. Let's enjoy the pleasant sight of children to warm our hearts, but be impervious to the untimely demands that their interruptions might create. The truth is, whether we're children or adults, we all want to be seen. Recently, one of my grandsons performed a spectacular kick, a perfect volley of a football. The moment after he did it, he immediately turned around to see if he'd been seen. Look, Grandad, did you see that? What he really meant was, did you see me doing that? Growing up, I experienced the opposite. I felt heard by my parents. They cared for me, provided and protected. But I didn't feel very seen or noticed in my home. And it's not that my parents were bad or consciously neglectful, but like swimmers hampered by leaden boots, frantically treading water just to stay afloat, they were preoccupied with survival and just trying to hold a home together. They married shortly after the end of the Second World War. My father had languished for five long years behind barbed wire as a prisoner of war until at last he'd escaped. His innocence hijacked by half a decade of incarceration and near starvation. Who knows what inner gremlins he wrestled. My mother carried her own scars. Abandoned by her father in infancy, one day he just walked out of the house and never returned, she too was a wounded soul, plagued by depression before depression really had a name. Her stepfather embraced the children should be seen and not heard philosophy. I was terrified of him. Expected to get out and get a job to contribute to the family income as soon as possible, education was denied my mum. She left school at 14 and was placed in service at a housemaid in a palatial home, Forget the romantic portrayal of the downstairs community in Downton Abbey. Every day she watched a privileged few enjoy a life of luxury that was as foreign and unreachable to her as a distant planet. Her confidence was dented, irreparable. She never learned to drive, failing test after test, until at last she gave up. Money was quite short in our home. My dad worked long hours as a maintenance engineer just to keep the family afloat and my mother did a marvellous job caring for my grandfather, who lived with us. A bowel cancer survival 
His colostomy meant that putrid dressings had to be changed throughout every day, a task that fell to my mum. My parents did unbelievably well just staying together under such pressures. Now, I share all this not to create some, when I was a lad, we had to walk 20 miles barefoot in the snow to get to school kind of picture, but because I'd be remiss if I didn't mention the very real challenges my parents endured. And surely, because of it all, I felt rather unnoticed. I know this not as a result of much psychotherapy, but because I remember one very exciting day in our family's life, one that embarrassingly shows how starved I was of attention. I think it happened when I was about 12 years old. Our house was burgled while I was alone there. Nothing was taken, but drawers were left flung open and stuff scattered everywhere as the robber searched in vain for something valuable to plunder. The police were called and I gave a statement. As it turned out, the thief did get away with something valuable that day because the thief was me. I actually staged a break-in just to get noticed and it worked. I think the kindly policeman knew that it was me. Unmotivated, my scholastic achievements were lacklustre at best. University was never a subject broached, and so I assumed that I would follow my father, uncles and brother into the company that they all worked for. I would service lifts and escalators. Thankfully, this never came about because the result would have been vast numbers of people stranded on the ground floor or stuck between the third and fourth. I have zero skill in anything practical or mechanical. A major triumph for me is the correct wiring of a 13-amp plug. Any attempt that I've ever made in the DIY department have prompted my family to gather for a time of intercessory screaming. Unimpressed by my careless attitude, my school teachers were largely indifferent. That is, until I joined Mr Ruff's class. An avid cricket fan and lover of Sussex Real Ale, Mr Ruff taught English and quickly decided that it was a subject that I could possibly do well in. This was very good news because I was mediocre at everything else. I disliked chemistry, mainly because the teacher in charge had almost blown his head off in an experiment that went wrong, which didn't inspire me with much confidence. History was dull, I hated my art teacher, the feeling was mutual, and I was so bad at maths that I didn't even bother to show up for my GCSE exam. I still cannot perform basic multiplication or division sums to this day. But English, now that was another story, literally. Mr Ruff told me that I was pretty good at stringing sentences together. More than that, he looked into a crowded classroom filled with adolescents who were aghast at the idea that Shakespeare was interesting, and he saw me. Like a moth to light, I responded to his interest and gained a double A at A-level. Being seen, that was the key that unlocked my potential. All these years later, I've tried in vain to track Mr Ruff down so that I could treat him to a pint of best bitter and maybe a steak to go with it. He saw me and it changed my life. And then there was another teacher, Mrs Richardson, who taught religious education. I had absolutely no interest in the subject, but felt drawn to her because she showed caring interest in me. I didn't know then that her husband, Brian, would become my pastor and do a wonderful job at it too. These people saw me. I loved them. 
One of my favorite Bible stories is the one about Zacchaeus, not least because it always makes me imagine Danny DeVito parked up in the branches. In a sense, Jesus was a dead man walking, passing through Jericho on his way to Jerusalem, fully aware of what would befall him there. But despite this, he was not walking with a head down, furrowed brow, I'm on my way to save the planet kind of attitude. Wonderfully, he saw the swindler, which was a big surprise in itself, but one greater was to follow as Jesus invited himself over to the tax man's home for lunch, probably prompted only by the joy of being noticed at the banquet that followed, Zacchaeus announced his sudden retirement from swindling and determined to make massive reparations. The Jewish theologian Martin Buber speaks of the distinction in our minds between treating people as subjects or objects. By objects, he means the propensity in our world for us to see others for what use they might have for us, or reducing them to being commodities to be managed rather than people to be noticed and cared for. To the doctor, dear Mr. Smith, who has just recently been widowed, becomes the broken arm in cubicle seven. To the salesperson in the shoe shop, the custom is an unwelcome interruption to her chatter about her Saturday night plans. And to the pastor, to the minister, the gathering of the uniquely storied individuals becomes the congregation, or worse still, just the crowd. Today, this week, most of us will see people. I'm not suggesting that we stop and stare at everyone, studying them intently. People who do that are called stalkers. But with God's help, let's take time this week to look, to notice, and if appropriate, stop and really see people. Who knows? Our genuine interest might just change a life. Being seen, that changed mine. I wish I'd known that God has a hobby. I always have mixed emotions when hearing about other people's hobbies because I experience a combination of slight envy and bemused bewilderment when others share how they spend their free time. I'm mildly jealous of one friend in particular who is passionate about carp fishing. I covet the thrill that he feels when pitching his tiny one-man tent on the mushy bogland by a mosquito hotel of a lake. He sits there for no less than three days, undisturbed, unwashed, and apparently loving every moment of it. When at last he hooks a carp, some of which he's caught before and knows by name, he takes a selfie with the wide-eyed fish lovingly cradled in his arms and then releases it back into the murky depths. I can't decide whether to emulate him or encourage him towards getting some help. Something similar happens when I'm around golfers. I loathe the game, not least because I'm so useless at it, being possessed of a spasm rather than a swing. The last time I played, I got teamed up with some Japanese gentlemen who were very, very good at golf, but about as good with English as I am with the Japanese language. After just seven holes of me gouging great clods of turf out of previously pristine greens, taking 15 shots on a par three hole, and usually missing the wretched ball altogether, they both fled and I haven't played since. I don't really have any hobbies. I'm rather partial to a glass of wine, but that's not something to get too passionate about. People who can, people who do can end up joining a club with others who share their enthusiasm. It's called rehab. 
But more than 45 years of Christian life and ministry have taught me that God does have a primary hobby. It's called redemption. Let me explain. In using the word redemption, I'm not talking about the wondrous act of cosmic rescue achieved at the cross in a way that none of us can fully understand but have historically argued about quite a lot. Jesus redeemed us at Calvary. This was the greatest work of all works as the creator became liberator. Now, I'm talking about God's amazing ability to bring good out of what was bad, in a word, redeeming. The master of turnaround, he doesn't just forgive what he was not the architect of, but takes the myriad muck-ups and messes that we mucked up and messed up human beings make and brings something beautiful out of them. He mines treasure out of our trashiest episodes. I'm not being irreverent in tagging this as God's hobby. A hobby is often an unusual action that brings great pleasure to the hobbyist. I believe God is especially thrilled with his redeemed, recycled masterpieces, of which there are many. Whiny, petulant Israel huffed and puffed and stamped her national foot, demanding a human king, which was never the plan. But out of that rebellious uprising came not only the insecure disaster that was Saul, but also golden boy Goliath toppling King David. Like all humans, he had feet of clay. David hooked up with Bathsheba and added murder to the sin of adultery by having her innocent, righteous husband killed off, the casualty of a royal conspiracy. But out of the eventual marriage between David and Bathsheba came Solomon, the greatly celebrated wise man. And from his line came the wisest and greatest royal, Jesus, the king of kings himself. Later, Judas sold Jesus out. Religious barons connived to bring him down, and the brutal Romans did their worst. But this vile morass led to the greatest turnaround in human history, as the cross, the instrument of death, became the tree of life, its eternal fruit available to all. And God's redemptive hobby can be traced in smaller triumphs. White-hot, zealous Christian types stumble and fall, but perhaps become more compassionate and tolerant because of their tumble. Bewildered believers who once had faith figured out suddenly hit a wall of question marks, but in trusting God through the unexplained, they make friends with mystery. And then suffering makes an unwelcome house call, and although nobody in their right mind would actually request a visit, solid gold faith is forged by that pain. Few of us can look back on the pathway that we've trod without any regrets, and those without regrets might just be deluded. But let's be assured of this. We serve the God of the turnaround. If we have our own horrible histories, not only does he wipe away their stain, but he can bring beauty out of the ashes of our mistakes and sins too. As I've shared tonight about two truths that I wish I'd known, that being seen matters, and that God has a hobby of redeeming that which he's not the architect of, let's know that God sees us. He sees where we are, and he sees where we've been. And surely, as we look back on our own journeys, there are things that we regret. Let's know that God sees but he does so with an eye to forgive, to bless, to redeem. 
Sometimes we can see ourselves through our worst decisions, our most hideous sins. But let's know that as we bring our sin, our shame to him, yes, he sees, but he offers forgiveness and grace. Have a great week. I'll see you next week. Lucas on Life.